Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Hello, everyone. I am so excited about today's episode. It's the Restorationist Manifesto. This is something that I've been working on for a long time and that I think really has the power to start a movement or add force to a movement that is already happening within Christianity today in the 21st century. Simply put, restorationism is the approach to Christianity that seeks to compare accepted doctrines and practices against the Bible to see if they are valid. Our intention as restorationists is to recover authentic New Testament Christianity and live it out today. We hold God's inspired scriptures above traditions, creeds, and clergy. I believe the time is ripe for us to reach over denominational lines and dialogue with each other about our differences in a respectful and constructive manner. We who believe this are restorationists, and this is our manifesto. We live in what's called the information age. And that is to say that there's not one strong organization that can tell us what we have to believe. There's not, at least for most of us, any threat to our lives, to our jobs, to our families for holding these truths. We live in a good time when it comes to exploring truth. I liken our time to the first three centuries of Christianity because that's before you get this strong institutional framework that can start coercing people to believe a certain way. And in those first three centuries, you had all kinds of different Christian groups and their only weapon against each other was persuasion rather than coercion in order to get adherence. And so that's where I think we are today with the information age. We have unprecedented access to Bible resources, to different viewpoints of Christian beliefs. In addition to that, we are, according to Charles Taylor, have entered into the age of authenticity, which is to say people are looking more and more for what's real, what, what is founded on principles and basics rather than necessarily traditions that have been handed down generation after generation. So the old cry of Desiderius Erasmus from the 16th century, ad fontes, which means to the sources, resonates with us again today. What is the source or what are the sources for genuine Christianity? Well, the clear answer to that, the easy answer to that is the Bible, but also Christian history as well, but primarily the Bible. And so I believe we live in a good time, a a ripe time for restorationism. And by restorationism, I'm not trying to pigeonhole myself into one particular group or set of groups. What I'm saying is a philosophy of Christianity, an approach to doctrine and practice that says we want to recover New Testament Christianity and live it out today. We want to recover authentic Christianity. We want to compare our beliefs, our practices, how we think about different ideas to what the scriptures say, and then If the scripture disagrees with us, we change. That's what I mean by restorationism. I know that for some of you, this word might have a a loaded meaning, but I'm, I'm not trying to identify with a particular group here. 
We do see this restorationist impulse throughout church history a few times. For example, the Waldensians in the 12th century, uh, John Wycliffe and the Lollards in the 14th. But really in the 16th century is the first time we have a wide-scale reconsideration of Christianity with the Protestant Reformation. That's 500 years ago this year. And in the Protestant Reformation, what happened is they started discarding things that weren't in the Bible. They got rid of the mass. They got rid of the celibacy of the priests. They got rid of praying to Mary. They got rid of a lot of these different medieval accretions that has settled over the text of Scripture like dust. They scraped away layer after layer. They got rid of papal infallibility until they got to Augustine, until they got to a form of Christianity that I would call Augustinian Christianity or 5th century Christianity. And I'm sure they had their reasons for why they did that. Hint, hint, Luther was an Augustinian monk. But, and, and there are lots of other political reasons for that. And I'm not here to cast stones at the reformers. I think they did great work. And yet the Reformation still needs to go back to the first century. And that's what I'm here to tell you tonight is that 500 years later, the time once again is ripe for us to go all the way back past Augustine, past the Cappadocian Fathers, past Athanasius, past Tertullian and Origen and the philosophers of the third century, past the second century, get past Irenaeus and Justin, all the way back to Paul of Tarsus, all the way back to James and Peter, all the way back to those people we read about in the New Testament. That's the goal of restorationism, and that's what I believe we need to be doing today. Simply put, our goal is to evaluate our beliefs and practices in light of Scripture, interpreting it within its original context, and then applying it to our own situations today, because we all live in different contexts, and we need to figure out how that faith can be lived out authentically today. So what I want to do is take a look at some restorationist values, first of all, and I've got six of them here, the first of which I've called biblical primacy, then scripture is intelligible, third is biblical cohesion, truth popularity is no guarantee, and then disruption in community. So I just want to cruise through each of these six ever so briefly. Look, I bet most of you in this room, maybe even all of you, will, will say, yeah, I know that, this is common sense. But I still want to say it because I think these are valuable beliefs or assumptions that we hold and, and hold dearly. So the first one, biblical primacy, that's simply the idea that the Bible comes first. It comes first before the scholars. It comes first before the pope, before the pastor, even if he's a mega church pastor. It comes before the creeds, the confessions, whatever ever anyone else has said. In the history of Christianity, the Bible has primary authority. And this is not a radical new idea. Martin Luther himself in 1521, when he was called on the carpet at the Diet of Worms, said, unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scriptures, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or of counsel, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. They were urging him, the Catholic Church at the time in the 16th century was urging Martin Luther to recant his books that he had written. And he said, unless you can show me from scripture that these books are wrong and from plain reason, 
I will not recant. That's biblical primacy. Also uttered by John Wycliffe sometime before that in the 14th century, he said, on all domains of doctrine and in life, the authority of Scripture is to be placed higher than all human understanding, for it is God's word and as such the highest authority. Now look, these might not seem like radical statements to us today, but John Wycliffe got in a lot of trouble for that, and so did Martin Luther. And so I think it's an important idea to start with. We want to allow the Bible to challenge our doctrines and practices rather than squeeze the Bible to fit the mold of what we think it should say. That's biblical primacy. All right, the next one. Scripture is intelligible. This is the idea expressed by Jacobus Arminius in the uh, 16th and 17th century when he said, For all things in the Scriptures are not equally perspicuous. The word perspicuous is not quite perspicuous today. It's the uh, word that means clear or easy to understand. So he says, not all things are equally perspicuous, nor is everything alike perspicuous to all persons. But in the epistles of St. Paul, some things occur which are hard to be understood. And the gospel is hid or concealed to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them who believe not. But those senses or meanings, the knowledge and belief of which are simply necessary to salvation, are revealed in the Scripture with such plainness that they can be perceived even by the most simple of mankind, provided they be able to duly exercise their reason. But they are perspicuous to those alone who, being illuminated by the light of the Holy Spirit, have eyes to see and a mind to understand and discern. In other words, God's book is for all people. I don't think it was accidental that he used shepherds and farmers and fishermen to write the book. And if you think about the Bible, those of you who have read the whole Bible, there's a large percentage of it that is historical narrative. And historical narrative is the easiest way to communicate. It's it's the easiest to understand. That's why we use historical narrative stories to tell our children about truths, right? So the Bible is, is full with so much that's easy to understand. Now, what Arminius is saying here is that, yeah, there are some corners that are difficult. And... Now we've got an army of scholars to, to argue about those corners. But let's, let's agree that the basic principles of salvation and eternal life are clear throughout Scripture. I mean, Jesus is not walking around in Athens or Alexandria in some sort of academy parsing Aramaic or Greek words, right? What, what is he doing? He's walking around the Sea of Galilee and he's talking to these unlettered fishermen. And you know what? They get it. They were generation one for Christianity. So I think the Bible is intelligible. That is to say, when you read it, you can understand it. Number three, biblical cohesion. Biblical cohesion is the idea that the Bible has a harmony to it. In other words, we believe that it's the same God who speaks throughout Scripture. It's not like the God of Ezekiel over here and then the God of Paul, and and, and these are just like characters in a book. No, we believe that the God of Ezekiel is the God of Paul, that there are not as many theologies as there are people, not to say there's not diversity, but we do hear the voice of God in scriptures. There was a tendency that entered Christian scholarship in the 19th century in particular that uh, came, came from Europe, and it had to do with questioning scripture and reading evolutionary ideology into scripture. That What I mean by that is Beliefs develop over time as humans grow and learn more about what they think God is like, as opposed to 
God's revealing himself to humans over time, developing their understanding. So Gerhardus Voss faced this in the 19th century. He's kind of the father of biblical theology. And he writes, Thus in harmony with the agnostic character of the philosophy of evolution, which claims that man can know phenomena only, the treatment of the science of biblical theology has been entirely subjectivized so that our modern biblical theologians professedly deal not with the progress of supernatural revelation, in which they do no longer believe, but with the development of subjective religion in biblical times and devote their labors to the discovery and reproduction of a number of diminutive doctrinal systems, often contradictory among themselves, which they profess to find in the Bible. So he's talking about this from the 19th century. Look, it's still with us today. If you go to any number of mainstream universities, secular universities, and you take a Bible class, what are they going to do there? They're going to slice and dice the books that they're studying. They're, they're going to argue over authorship. They're going to sit over the text, not under the text. And what they're going to say is, oh, well, this, this author thinks this, and this one over here thinks that. What they're doing is they're pitting everyone against them, each other rather than trying to see the harmony, trying to view any kind of cohesive doctrine. So look, if you don't believe in biblical cohesion, you can't do doctrinal synthesis. You can't say, well, this is the, this is the view of God that the Bible teaches, because there are many views. Now, look, there is diversity within Scripture. Each author has a particular vocabulary and life experiences and, and way of writing and all that, but there is cohesion, and therefore, doctrinal synthesis, whether we're talking about biblical theology or systematic theology, is possible. All right, next one, truth's popularity. Uh, what I call this is popularity is no guarantee for veracity. That is to say, just because a lot of people believe something doesn't make it true. Vincent of Lerim was dealing with this in the 5th century. Really uh, an interesting little document he wrote here. He writes, this is part of the Vincentian canon, We hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, by all. For that is truly, and in the strictest sense, Catholic, which, as the name itself and the reason of the thing declare, comprehends all universally. So, this is quite an ideal. And look, if you're back in the 5th century, you can, you can kind of pull this and, and almost get away with it, where you say, well, look, what everyone else believes, that's what we believe. I mean, can you imagine saying that today? That would be tough to say. Then he goes on to, to talk a little bit more. This is in his uh, The Commonatory, Chapter 2. He goes on to talk a little bit more, and he says, well... What if, what if some group of Christians gets off track on something? And I, and I don't think in, in his time he's even able to have the thought that what if Christianity is already off track? Which I think this is the Augustinian Christianity that resurfaced in the Reformation period, the 5th century Christianity. I think it was already off track by 434 in Vincent of Lairin. But it's interesting because what he says a little later on is he recognized the possibility that, quote, some novel contagion might seek to infect not merely an insignificant portion of the church, but the whole. And then he gives advice for what we should do as Christians if some sort of a novel contagion affects or infects all of Christianity. He says, we should prefer the decrees, if such there be, of an ancient general council to the rashness and ignorance of a few. All right, here's the question, though. What if the novelty... What if the deviant belief or practice infected Christianity before the councils? Let me sharpen it. What if the councils themselves contain the contamination? 
Vincent of Leyren is not prepared to even think that thought. But as a restorationist, we can't stop with 5th century Christianity and just sort of be comfortable with Catholic tradition from Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, and so on. We, we can't stop there. We have to. I mean, that's the whole point of being a restorationist. We want to go all the way back. We want to restore the Christianity we believe in practice in all the way back to what was there in the New Testament, what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught. All right, so then the next point here is disruption. This is just going to happen if you have the courage to pursue restorationism. You're going to disrupt your beliefs. And when you disrupt one of your beliefs, the intertwined nature of doctrine means that you're likely to disrupt other beliefs too. Has anyone had that happen where you, you change your belief on one thing and then something else changed as, as well? I saw a couple of hands there. Yeah. And you know what? That's okay. We accept that that's the way it works. We're not going to fear that. We're not going to say, oh, well, you don't want to reconsider atonement because if you reconsider atonement, then your doctrine of something else over here might get out of whack. Well, let it get out of whack. All right, let's get the atonement squared away and then we'll figure out whatever options are over there for the other one. We accept that doctrines are intertwined and that pursuing the Berean exercise of testing ideas against the scriptures, see if they're true, we accept that that is a disruptive process. Nobody feels comfortable when they find out a cherished belief was wrong. Nobody jumps for joy when that happens. We're all just like, oh man, or I can't believe I was so naive, or but my parents said, my pastor said, you know, we don't like that feeling. That's, but that, you know what? That's something we have to be willing to face if we're going to be restorationists. And then number six value of restorationism is this idea of community. And look, you can arrive at the truth on your own. I believe that. Do you believe that? You can arrive at the truth on your own. You, a Bible, on a desert island. I think it's possible that some. But you know what? It's also incredibly easy to veer into error alone. It's a lot harder when you're in conversation with other people, when others are, are able to have the mutual respect to disagree with you without exploding emotionally. And if you have that, then you're going you're gonna to do better. It's what it says in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Look at that. The Bible doesn't, doesn't hold the love on one side and the truth on the other. This happens all over the place in the New Testament where it's like truth and love, like all mixed up. To, hey, look, there's a way to do this. We can speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that's the idea of community. We are finite we are blind in some areas. We need to challenge and correct one another in humility and grace. Look, truth can withstand scrutiny. Truth has nothing to fear. If, if you hit the truth with your hardest arguments against it, if it's really true, it'll be okay. And so I think we, we have a real opportunity to do this sort of community idea. So that's, those are some restorationist values. Now I want to just look at three main points on how do we actually do restorationism, or what I like to call the enterprise of restorationism. Simply put, the restorationist goal is to grasp New Testament Christianity and live it out today. We can pursue that goal through quality Bible study. 
which is called exegesis. And that is using the historical grammatical method. We can use doctrinal synthesis and evaluate competing doctrines. So those are three aspects of how we go about restoring authentic Christianity through the process of restorationism. So the first point there is that we want to do quality exegesis. Now, you've all probably seen this before. This is a classic little way of describing the difference, but you have exegesis and then you have eisegesis, right? Exegesis means when you start with the text and draw out its meaning. You see how it says start with the text? You start with the text and draw out its meaning. Only after study analysis do you formulate interpretations of or reactions to what you read. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is when you take things out of context to support just about any presuppositions and or prejudices you already had. Or we don't want to do eisegesis. We don't want to read into the scriptures. We want to do exegesis, read out. Look, the Bi if we have biblical primacy as a value, then let the Bible mess up our systematic theology. Let it do it. Unleash the scripture like, like a dog on our crazy ideas about this, that, or the other. And look, if they're right, they'll be able to handle it. We invite, as far as Bible study goes, we invite God into the process in, in the beginning. Uh, so much of scholarship today is, is so, they hold your piety, your practice, your devotion on one side, and then they do their scholarship over here. Look, as restorationists, that's not historic Christian posture towards Scripture. Historically, Christians pray and then we read scripture. Historically, Christians petition God and say, God, show me what this means. And I think that's a good place to start when we do Bible study. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit merely lurks underneath the text in the inspiration of the original writers, but we believe that it also hovers above it as we read it today, helping us to understand it as well. As far as actual points on Bible study goes, the Bible is historical in nature. So it's important to do the hard work of tuning our ears to hear what they heard when the scriptures were written back then. And that might mean studying history. It might mean learning ancient languages. It might mean exposing ourselves to their thought world so that we can hear things the way they heard things rather than the way a 21st century American uh, might hear something, just speaking for myself here. So I've got some principles and su suggested specifics on how to do that in Appendix 1. You can look at that if you're interested. Second up, beyond just reading Scripture and, and understanding what it means in its context, is doctrinal synthesis. And this is the exciting part. We always just want to jump to this one, right? And that's where you collect all the verses on a particular subject, and you try to synthesize a cohesive thought about that teaching about that subject. And so doctrinal synthesis is extremely important. The goal, once again, has to begin with humility. And that is to say, the restorationist approach to doctrinal synthesis is not, what did the Westminster Confession say? It's not, what does Vatican II say? No, it's what does God say throughout the scriptures? And look, we have to be willing to admit we could be wrong with what we currently believe. We have to be willing to admit, I could have been seeing this wrong the whole time. But you know what? I, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going I'm to approach, like obviously we all have an, a, an opinion, a position on whatever belief we're talking about, right? But we hold it 
tentatively and have an open mind that says, all right, well, if I'm wrong on this, I would want to know. I would want to, the scripture to correct me. And so it's good to prefer a certain viewpoint as far as you want to have a better explanatory scope. You want to take into account the history of redemption. You want to put verses together in a way that if you develop a doctrine, it doesn't then totally contradict another part of the Bible somewhere else, right? And so I have some specific suggestions on that, again, in Appendix 2, if you're interested in that. Once again, the community is incredibly important because we need each other to bounce ideas off of. And we're not finished with doctrinal synthesis until we apply it to real life. I mean, what good is it to develop a robust doctrine of forgiveness and then not actually forgive your enemies when, when they do you wrong, right? I mean, whatever, whatever your doctrine is you're working on or whatever the practice, and then and the, just understanding it isn't good enough. We have to also live it. And only then is it authentic Christianity as opposed to just the ideas of Christianity. And then the last one of the restorationist enterprises, evaluating doctrines. We need to consider what others have said throughout church history and today as well. To assume that your individual viewpoint, which let's assume nobody else has ever had that viewpoint before, is right. And every Christian throughout all of time in 20 centuries, they're all wrong. I feel like that's just not a good working assumption. You know what I mean? Like, that's like assuming that God has never revealed this truth. Like Joseph Smith went there, and we got the Mormons. But I don't know if that was necessarily a good thing. What about you? So I, I, think, it's, I think it's helpful to be in dialogue with the history of Christianity and with present-day other, other Christians. And that is through evaluating competing doctrines. So we want to evaluate doctrinal positions on the basis of their merits, not on the basis of their source. That's the genetic fallacy. That's saying, well, the Catholics teach this, so it must be wrong. Oh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that, so, well, pfft, can't be right. That's not a good way to pursue truth. The better way to do it is to look at the content of what they're saying and hold that up against the scripture to see if it works. And to hold it up against other ways of looking at that same subject and see which one's better. Which one has more supporting verses? Which one leaves fewer verses left to be explained? These sorts of ideas. And, and look, if an idea is anachronistic, that is to say, it takes something from the future and puts it in the past in a way that couldn't have been in that time, then it's just wrong. You, you heard the old one about the uh, car the apostles drove? Yeah, they were all in one accord, right? Well, they didn't have cars back then. That's an anachronistic question. So we want to prefer ideas that are not anachronistic. And I've got a provisional list, once again, of objective criteria to evaluate competing doctrines in Appendix 3 if you want to follow that up. But when it comes to calling yourself a restorationist, self-identifying as a restorationist, I want to talk about three advantages of this. One is it gives us a stable identity. Two, there are some evangelistic advantages. And three, ecumenism. I'm not going to ask, but I would be really curious to know what you call yourself when somebody says to you, what are you with respect to your faith? I bet we'd have a lot of different answers. We identify ourselves on the basis of our denomination or our metagroup that's like, evangelical, Protestant, or mainline, or whatever, or we identify ourselves on the basis of a doctrinal package, like, I'm an Arminian, 
or I'm a dispensationalist, or I'm a subordinationist. And so that's how we identify ourselves now. Uh, some of us will, will, will identify ourselves as just Christian, or a disciple, or a follower of Christ. Look, that's all great too. But then comes the second question. What kind of Christian? Right? Yeah, anybody else get paralyzed when you get asked that question? Church of God, isn't that uh, that charismatic group? No, it's not that one. <laughs> so what are you? Well, there's always that second question. So anyhow, I want to run through a scenario with you. Suppose a woman grows up Catholic, and she studies the Bible and discovers that nowhere in the Bible does anyone ever pray to Mary. And so she joins the Anglican Church. Now she's an Anglican. And then she comes to read Scripture and sees that it doesn't have anything about a state church. In fact, it actually talks about separation from the world. So she joins the Baptist Church, and she attends there, and then she's reading her Bible, and once again, she, she doesn't see this heaven at death idea, so she starts believing in conditional immortality, and she joins the Seventh Day at Venice. Now she's going to their church, and they're talking about keeping the law, and practicing the Sabbath and all these things, and, and, and through, once again, scripture study, what does she do? She comes to disagree with practicing the law of Moses. And so she goes to a house church that just kind of focuses on Christian living. I ask you, would the label non-denominational adequately encompass her experience? I don't think so. I mean, she was a Catholic, an Anglican, a Baptist, an SDA, and now a non-denom, right? But, but here's the thing about this hypothetical woman. She's consistently applied the principles of restorationism the whole time. The whole time she's done the same practice over and over again. She's taken the beliefs and she's tested them against the scripture to see if it's true. Over and over, that's the consistent, that's the stable identity. And so she would do well to identify herself as a restorationist. A restorationist who goes to a house church. A restorationist who goes to Seventh-day Adventist church. Whatever particular group you happen to be in currently, that's the stable identity. I struggled with this a lot when I was at Boston University because people would ask me, well, what are you? And the number of labels I had to string together was just ridiculous. And by the time I got through all of them, they were like, I was just making conversation, man. Like, I wasn't trying to get a theology lecture here. It's like, I thought you were going to say United Methodist, because United Methodist. No, I'm not a United Methodist. But I could have said I'm a restorationist if I had thought of it at the time. All right, the second point is there's an evangelistic advantage of self-identifying as a restorationist. And that is, when they ask that question, what kind of Christian are you? You could say, well, I'm a restorationist. And it could lead to a, a dialogue such as this. Of course they're going to say, what's a restorationist? Got them right where you want them. Now you're talking about what really matters. You're not talking about some prejudice against a denomination, some attitude against some group of people, right? What are you talking about? You're talking about your approach, your general philosophy, your general approach to scripture and life. And so then you can say, what's a restorationist? It's someone who is on a quest to recover and live out authentic Christianity. Now their interest is piqued. What do you mean, authentic Christianity? Well, we can reply, from what I've seen, the church has gotten off track from what Jesus and his apostles taught. I'm trying to get back to the original faith and find ways to live it out today. Oh, that sounds interesting. How do you go about doing that? Well, we have Bible studies and meet together to learn from Scripture what it really says. Would you like to come sometime? I mean, it's just so easy. Now, if you identify with a particular subset of a group, now you've got all the, the, the baggage of that 
person's viewpoint on that group, as well as all their misunderstandings. And this kind of just cuts through all that. So it has an advantage in that, in that sense as well. And then ecumenism, a third of benefit for self-identifying as a restorationist is this potential to unify. Because you can be in a whole bunch of different groups and still claim that philosophy towards Christianity, restorationism. And in a world of over 33,000 denominations, Jesus' words where he prayed to the Father in John 17 and asked that we would all be one, even as he and the Father are one, seem a little embarrassing. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. This is an objection that people raise against Christianity. You guys can't get along with each other. Why do I want to join your group? Right? It's just, it's just another form of the same thing I see all around me, this sectarianism. Barton Stone, who pioneered the restoration movement in the 19th century, he said, why so much zeal in the present day against authoritative creeds, party names, party spirits? I answer for myself because I am assured they stand in the way of Christian union and are contrary to the will of God. If we oppose the union of believers, we oppose directly the will of God, the prayer of Jesus, the spirit of piety, and the salvation of the world. Look, we don't need more sectarianism. Our world is full of it. It's full of it politically. It's full of it when it comes to sports teams. It's just endemic in our way of thinking. Could you imagine a world in which Christians were the example of how to work together and to practice dialogue and constructive disagreement. Can you imagine if we were the ones that were leading the charge in that kind of a world and, and people couldn't get along with each other, they would say, well, look at the Christians. They figured out how to get along with each other. Maybe they don't agree on every little thing, but at least have a mutual respect for each other. That's the world that, that I want to see. Centuries later, from Barton Stone, it's time for an honest, courteous exchange among Christians of differing beliefs. Look, if, if you have a bunch of people in a room and we all agree on our beliefs, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about where you have people that disagree and they sit at a table and they can talk with each other and not freak out or explode. Let's no longer cling to these traditions. Let's evaluate them against Scripture. And if, and if they stand against Scripture, then hold to them. And let's no longer accept old divisions that keep us apart. Let's return to the Bible. Think about it. The Bible is the one text. It's the one thing that unites all Christians together. We could disagree about every other belief or practice. If you want to find a common ground, we all read this book, right? And so it has the potential to unify, I believe. Since restorationism is not a denomination, but a general posture towards discovering truth, it can easily foster unity without overturning local organizational structures. Look, I'm not saying quit your church and join a, a church that has like the word restoration in it. Look, if you want to do that, that's fine. But my point is, stay in your church and bring this mindset with you and see if you can't convince others of it too to test their ideas against the scripture. All right, some quick criticisms of restorationism, I, I came across this sweet quote by Kevin DeYoung, a Reformed theologian and a pastor, just from last month, where he just blew out restorationism at the uh, Gospel Coalition conference in uh, Indianapolis. He, he thinks it's a devastating criticism. I wonder what you think. He says, We do not interpret Scripture apart from creeds, confessions, and the traditions of the church. Like, I want to stop right there and be like, and so you're not, are you sure you're not a Catholic? 
Seems like that's what Martin Luther was up to, right? Interpreting scripture apart from the creeds, the confessions, and the tradition of the church. That was the whole Reformation. I'll leave that alone. It is not solo scriptura, meaning scripture and we never open another book. Some of you maybe come from churches or perhaps you even think this yourself and you might say, there is no creed but the Bible. Sounds nice, sounds spiritual, and it actually sounds like a creed. We believe in the Bible and our creed, no creed but the Bible. No, we are willing, humbly, to climb on the shoulders of giants and to learn from what those who have gone before have taught and have understood. We ought to put the burden of proof on those who would overturn the historic consensus of the church, whether it's related to sexuality or to the deity of Christ. We aren't assigning ourselves to utter interpretive chaos. We aren't claiming to start all over. We are willing to learn and rely on others. This is always the fatal flaw in restorationist movements in church history. Those movements who say, you know what, I'm just, just, I'm just getting back to the Bible, just me and the Bible, nothing else. I'm just zipping back to the first century like nothing has happened for 2,000 years, like I'm not at all influenced by my own culture, like I have nothing to learn from Athanasius or Augustine or Luther or Calvin or any of the Christians that have gone before as if the Holy Spirit has not been at work in the church and I'm just going back, me and the Bible. Even if that were desirable, it is not possible. So let me just cruise through four little points here by way of response to DeYoung here. The first one is that restorationists are just naive. They want to return to an idyllic golden age. Well, that's not really true. We're not setting a year in the time machine and going back to 90 AD or something like that. What are we doing? We are returning to Scripture. We're returning to what God has placed His authority on which is the text of Scripture. That's what we're looking to return to. We recognize that first century Christianity had its own problems. Have you ever read Corinthians? It's just one issue after another. Distinguishing gender roles. How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Speaking in tongues. Resurrection. They had issues about resurrection. So it's not like we don't realize that there were issues in the first century church. It's just that we want to go back to what God's final authority is, which is expressed through the first century church in the scriptures. And we believe that those resolutions are relevant today as well. And we believe that, and maybe you think this is naive, but I believe that God protected the scriptures. That he was able to do that. That, yeah, there, was all, there were all kinds of ideas out there, but he saw to it that what he wanted to be in there, got in there. I don't think this is a defeater that we're just naively trying to return to a golden age. Nobody, how many times did I say golden age before this moment right here? Zero, right? So it's the idea of being Bereans returning back to, to scripture and testing our beliefs against them. All right, number two, uh, restoration is skip over church history as if we have nothing to learn from those who came before us. Not true. How many church people have I quoted to you so far? from all different kinds of centuries and traditions. We are not doing that. We're not saying everything that's ever happened between us and the, and the Bible is irrelevant. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we can't be sure it's true unless we test it against the Bible. Some of those movements that we've seen throughout the course of history are of God, and some of them are not. How do we tell the difference? 
How do we tell if God's fingerprints are on a particular movement? We judge it on the basis of scripture. And if it, if it holds up, then we praise God for that movement. And if it doesn't, then we say, well, we took a left turn there. Let's get back to the more authentic form. Some groups believe in a model of church history that says, in the first century, everything is good. We have the, the New Testament, we have the apostles. And then the moment the year hit 100, we got into the second century. Now we've fallen off the cliff into apostasy. Uh, this is the teaching of the Mormon church. They believe that everything just went, I don't know if that's the specific date, but they believe that everything just went off. And everything just went downhill the moment the last apostle died. Look, a lot of things went downhill, but they go downhill and then they come back up. And then other things go side to side. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that just stays strong within the history of Christianity, like loving your neighbor as yourself. We're still saying that, right? All right, and then the third one, interpretive chaos. Restorationists accept the danger of misinterpretation with trepidation and humility. We know that we could possibly get it wrong, which is precisely why we want to be restorationists, because we know we could be wrong. The only way out is to test it against the scriptures to see if it's true. And if you don't think we're already in interpretive chaos, you just need to go to YouTube sometime. Type in any subject and you will witness interpretive chaos. So restorationism isn't the problem. It's not going to result in interpretive chaos. It's the way out. We're already in interpretive chaos. Uh, number four, it's impossible to go back. Thankfully, Christianity is not limited to a particular setting, a particular culture, a particular geography, a particular language. All right? It happened in these particularities, but it's not limited to them. Christianity can spread across languages, across countries, across cultures. Right? That's what evangelism is. That's what missionary work is. That's what, for example, the Apostle Paul was up to in the book of Acts, bringing authentic Christianity to pagans in Asia Minor, in Galatia, in Rome, in all these other places. And so... Look, the goal is not to embody the world of New Testament Christianity. It's to embody New Testament Christianity. We don't have to all learn ancient Greek and only use that at mealtimes here at this conference. Well, that, that would be a great exercise and a lot of fun. Thankfully, the faith transcends particularities like language and technology. To those who say, it's impossible, we reply, watch us. We're going to do it. We are doing it, and we're going to keep doing it. All right, just two quick pitfalls and then uh, a final appeal. Two quick pitfalls. One is what I call absolute restorationism, and the other is prescriptive versus descriptive, failing to distinguish between those. In certain restorationist groups over time, there has developed an idea that is almost like a negative restorationism that says if it's not in the New Testament, we're not doing it. All right, so... As a, a gentleman recently put it to me over the phone, we hum, we don't strum. Uh, and that's because the New Testament doesn't mention any musical instruments, so they have a cappella singing. This was also a controversy back in the day over missionary societies. There were no missionary societies mentioned in the New Testament, so you shouldn't have a missionary society. Well, the people who are humming and not strumming are wearing glasses and sitting in pews and holding books called hymnals. None of those things were there in the New Testament either. There's not a single mention of a pew, or eyeglasses, or a hymnal, 
in the New Testament. Does that mean that they should all stand outside naked? No, please don't do that. What it means is we don't have to have this absolute restorationist approach where it's like, only if it says it, can we do it? Rather, let's say that if it does say it, we should do it. And everything else in our complex, technologically sophisticated, confusing time, let's just measure up and see if we can reason our way through based on what's already there. And then the other one is prescriptive versus descriptive. And that is that some restorationist groups, notably the ones that use the, the term apostolic in their name, uh, some charismatic groups, what they say is, well, we need to restore authentic first century Christianity. We need, to, we need to do the book of Acts. We need to live the book of Acts. Whatever the book of Acts says is exactly what we need to do. And there's a strong insistence on imitating everything you see in the book of Acts. Look, if the book of Acts says to do something, then it's prescribing it. But if it's just describing what the first century church did, that's a description. It doesn't mean that you have to do it exactly the same way. Look, they were open to the Spirit in their time, to God's leading. So should we in our time. The book of Acts shows us what's possible, but not what's necessary. Does that make sense? So I, I want to kind of avoid that pitfall as well. Looking over the history of Christianity, we have not done well. I think we need to be honest about that. We have fought with each other. And I'm not talking about you in this room. I'm talking about 2,000 years of church history. I have a degree in church history. It's like, it's what I think about, okay? And we have not done well. If you think about all the major councils, what was the purpose of the Council of Nicaea? It was a bishop in Alexandria trying to fire a presbyter and then get rid of other bishops that supported him. That was what was in the background of Nicaea. For Ephesus in 431, it was all about Cyril usurping the patriarch of Constantinople, Nestorius. Chalcedon was about splitting off the Alexandrian Christians. Do you know there's a whole denomination of people that were split off in 451? Millions of people. What are these councils doing? They're dividing us. They're dividing us over and over again. And Protestantism hasn't done much better. You think of the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, and it said that, well, whatever territory you're in, you could be a Catholic or you could be a Lutheran. What if you're an Anabaptist? Right? Or think about the Westminster Confession of 1646. That was a power play in the midst of the British Civil Wars to force Puritanism onto the Church of England. It was a power play. So the, these councils, and I know that like, they get venerated and everyone's like, oh, the, the, the wording is so beautiful. Okay, whatever. But you study the history of them and you're like, wow, this is not a good example for, like, I wouldn't let my kids treat each other this way in my house. You know, this one wants to have a vote and kick this one out of the house? No, learn how to talk to each other, right? Isn't that what you do as a parent with your kids when they're fighting with each other? So I think we have a huge opportunity for improvement, and I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, restorationism is not only the key to the past, but it's also the way to the future. This approach helps us arrive at historic biblical truth, and it provides a way forward for Christians of various denominations. We're not calling anyone to leave their group but to be an agent of change from the inside, if possible. And if you get kicked out, we're glad to have you among our ranks as well. <laughs> a lot of people do get kicked out as soon as you ask any questions. But you know what? That's got to change. That's got to change. The denominations, the old school mindset that says we're the power players, that's got to change. Where they're, they're willing to, to have dialogue and, and, and honest Bible discussion and not say, well, the confession says this, so there, there's the door. 
And we have a lot of that still in our world today, don't we? Uh, and how is that going to change? Well, people within the group need to raise their voice and say, hey, the Bible says this and you guys are teaching that, so let's talk about it. Rather than starting a new denomination, let's infiltrate the existing ones and challenge them to get back to the Bible. Each one of us should not only read the Bible on our own, but also gather in groups to test out our ideas. Sadly, good models for disagreeing constructively are rare. Even so, let's find a way to do this. Let's hold debates. Let's really listen to both sides, whether formal or informal. Let's write books that genuinely engage multiple perspectives. Let's hold gatherings where advocates for differing perspectives can argue it out in a spirit of Christian love. Let's show the world that Christ followers are different than the politicians, than celebrities, than the people we see on the news. If only we could learn to have open dialogue across doctrinal, denominational, and traditional lines, the church, with all of her sects and divisions, could move closer and closer to truth and unity towards Christianisme restitutio, which is the restoration of Christianity. Thank you. Well, I hope you found that interesting and stimulating. If you want to subscribe to emails and get updates about new podcasts and other posts that happen on Restitudio, come on over to restitudio.org and you can sign up for that. Also, I have a video of this same lecture posted on restitudio.org or on our YouTube page. So check that out if you want to see all the visuals that went along with the original presentation. If you want to challenge the restorationist mindset, please come online and let's have some conversation. Whether you agree with some of the criticisms that I played out or I mentioned, or you have other criticisms, please come on to reststudio.org, go to podcast 88, and add your voice to the mix. Thanks so much for taking the time to consider this, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.